Hi, I'm Rachel Cook, your modern mentor. Have you ever wanted career advice? Like how to self-promote at work and not feel gross about it? How to make the peer-to-boss transition? Or how to make a big career change? On my podcast, you can find honest and straightforward advice on how to craft a workplace experience that you can feel good about. Listen to Modern Mentor on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our new mini-series all about the Ready's future of HR. I am back with my co-host, Sam Sperlin. We are going to jam on lots of fun, buy-in related topics today. How you doing, Sam? Hey, Rodney. I'm doing so well now that I'm sitting here talking to you. Yay! Today is taking a decided upward trajectory. Also, <laughs> listeners, it took fully a minute and a half to hit record because I was laughing so hard at something Sam said that I couldn't compose myself. So that's the kind of mood we're in today. But we're going to also talk about something very serious today, which is how to get buy-in from all of the people who need to buy into making big, important changes within the HR function. So hang in for that. But before we do it, let's do a check-in. Let's check in with this question. Rodney, what is your most embarrassing injury? Ah. Uh, also, okay. I'm happy to go first because I did legitimately spring this on you. And usually when I'm working with clients and I give them a kind of a, a tricky check-in, I'll go first so they have a chance to think. Would you like me to do that? Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Okay, cool. I have two very quick ones. When I was a small child, I was running through a sprinkler and I slipped and I fell and I broke my collarbone. Uh, and so, you know, first broken bone, sprinkler related. And then many years later, driving to hockey practice in high school, I yawned real big and I, my back spasmed <laughs> and I couldn't, and I couldn't practice. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the joy of getting older is just being like, I threw my back out and people are like, how? And you're like, I picked up a hairdryer. Yeah. It's just like, that's, well, how, also, that's how backs work now. I was 18 in that uh, (laughs) little story, so not great. (laughs) That's way worse. I don't have something really awesome that comes to mind, but I do remember (laughs) when I was like probably 16, I was doing something really stupid while I was driving. I don't even really remember, but I think what happened was I – for. No reason, because teenage moron. Yeah, you don't need nonsense. a reason to be an idiot. I reached my hand through the steering wheel of my car to like futz with the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I had to turn, and <laughs> I was almost missed my turn, and I snapped the directional lever off and hurt my wrist at the same time. <laughs> and it was just one of those like my brain was trying to do too many things and was like not fully formed yeah, and just got. Yeah tied up. And (laughs) I came home and I had a huge bruise on my wrist and my car was broken. My mom was like, what is wrong with you? What were you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I was like reaching through my, and she's like, why would you be reaching through the steering wheel? And I truly think that I was like, I don't know. I thought it looked cool. (laughs) And that was my answer. That's a great, it's a great answer. It's a personal injury and also a car injury that you caused. Poor car. I'm sure there are others. I probably just like block them out. Well, hopefully no one gets injured going to get buy-in for transforming the future of HR. Ooh, that was what a, a segue. segue. You are a professional. <laughs> I've done wow, this Wow, professional podcaster 
Rodney Evans. Thanks so much, Sam. I appreciate the admiration. What we are going to do today is talk about how you all get buy-in for making a larger change. Because we know that you listened to the first episode and you were all fired up. We actually did hear from a few of you, which was really nice. We know that there are a bunch of people out there who are ready to roll. We know from doing our research that the concepts that we're talking about do seem to really be landing. And usually the two questions that we get that are like, they're not really pushbacky. Generally, they are genuinely like, how the fuck do I do this? Are one, where do we find the capacity, which we'll probably talk about on another episode, maybe the next one. And two, how do I get buy-in to do this? Because like, I don't have the budget or I don't have the authority or I don't have the whatever the thing is. So that's what we're going to dig into today. I will just say by way of a brief anecdote. I was at an HR event last week in New York City, and a woman who is going to come onto this show, who I love very dearly, was leading a panel, and she told a story that she had heard from another chief people officer about how HR is the only position on the executive team that you get And then once you have interviewed and gotten there, you still are constantly interviewing to be allowed to do the job. So it's like, you're in the chair and then you're like, hey, could we do something around talent? And the CEO is like, no. And it's like, cool, could we like get this technology to automate this process? And the CFO is like, no. And it's like, when the CFO says, hey, I think that we should do taxes differently, no one goes like, "Mm, I don't think so. I think we know better than you, no. But when it's HR, everybody can say no, and HR can't say yes. And that is so shite. That's got to be incredibly frustrating. I mean, this has the smell of a rabbit hole, but I'll ask it anyway. Why? Mm. Why Why does it work that way? Why is that expertise not respected in the same way of a CFO or CIO or something like that? I don't know, man. I mean, I would ask you the same question. The first answer that comes to my brain is I always felt when I was in HR, everybody else thought they knew how to do the job. They were like, I've managed people. So like this isn't real subject matter expertise because like I'm also a leader. And so I also know about these things because I've had to do them with my team, which to a certain extent is true. It's like your average chief product officer knows more about HR than I know about developing product. Sure. But I don't know. There must be other reasons. What are they? I mean, that was the main thing that I was going to point to, I think. And I, the whole idea of like soft skills, mm. definitely a misnomer for dealing with humans. But I think people would agree that often those skills get downplayed in importance or the idea that we all know how to do this and there's not real expertise here. I'm a human, you're HR, you know, like it's, we're, we're <laughs> all humans here. How hard can it be, right? <laughs> <laughs> so hard. That and I think too, because as we talked about last week, HR is most visible when things are going very poorly. I wonder if there's some kind of weird, I don't know, like if that ends up affecting how you perceive the role and the expertise required to do it. Yeah. I mean, I also think that in the pantheon of appetite for change, which is tricky no matter where you're working. I feel like HR runs into a little bit of the like eat your vegetables first problem where like HR can be like, hey, I think that we should change how we work and do mission-based teaming so that we can get after some of these cross-functional priorities. And I feel like it's really easy for peers on the team to be like, you know, we've got that lawsuit going on. 
are you sure you're ready to like go do this like uh, nice to have when we haven't figured out hybrid work yet? Like, should we be tackling the present issues that you haven't yet fully sorted out for us before we go do that? And it's such a slippery logic because it's like, yeah, you can fill potholes forever until you retire and you'll yeah. never get any of the stuff done that might prevent the future potholes. Yeah, not only the present eat your vegetables, but we know that historically emergencies are just coming down the pike. So be ready. Keep that capacity ready to go. Don't get distracted by this shiny new thing because some shitstorm is inevitably going to land here soon. So be ready for it. Right. It's on its way. So I feel like making the case for transformation when you're HR to your peer group is like, you run into this a lot just in any transformation project because usually there is some buyer or sponsor who's all barred up and wants to get the executive team or whoever else gives a shit also excited so that we can go do our job. So when you are helping that sponsor to go and get more buy-in, what are some of the things that you arm them with before you send them into that room? Yeah, the the main thing, and it really depends on the context and, and what the larger organizational tensions might be, but mm-hmm. what we're really trying to arm them with is business outcomes that other people on the team are going to care about, how we can affect them. You know, I love a lot of the fluffier aspects of transformation. And by fluffier, I just mean like experiencing work better. <laughs> like the experience of work is not soul crushing. Awesome. Hard to put a, a number on that. But there's interesting things you can do around, hey, if we meet the in different ways, we can be more effective. We can do some modeling on like how much money we're saving with that. So I would be looking for how do you tell that story in a credible and logical way that other folks who may not care about some of those more amorphous things could get on board and be like, yeah, actually, this is something that we should invest in if we're going to see these sorts of outcomes that you're talking about here. Yeah. I feel like it's also helpful in those moments to point to outcomes that we are unlikely to achieve with our current ways of working. I've definitely used fear tactics when I've been trying to get an executive team to do things where they'll have an outcome that they can articulate clearly. And they'll be like, yeah, you know, we went after this last quarter, but we biffed it. And I'm like, oh, what's different now? And they're like, I mean, right. you know, we're really focused on it now. And I'm like, cool. Okay. Do you want to do something harder. different? <laughs> we're going to try harder and yeah. be madder. Yeah. And so I, I say that because I think it, I mean, it's not really a fear tactic. It's just pointing out the obvious, which is nothing changes unless you change. And your system was not designed to do the thing that you wanted it to before. And it probably won't now. And so yeah. a lot of times I take that tact. And I also totally often really lean into the like, we all already know it's broken. Like, it's not going to be worse. Right, right. And a right, lot of times yeah. people are like, yeah, that's true. You know, when people are like, I don't know about this approach to like creating strategy. I'm like, well, you hate how you do it now. It's the worst <laughs> that could happen. You're probably not going to hate yeah. it more. Yeah. And I feel like it kind of loosens everybody up to be like, yeah, we could try something. We are deeply dissatisfied. Why are we protecting this thing that we all hate? There's like probably some psychology that I can't cite here around the idea of liking something just because it is yours or like because you have experience sure. with it and trying to relax that movement a little bit, that tension to actually just like, hey, let's create a little bit of space here and try a thing that is, to your point, not going to be worse because it's, it's pretty be shitty worse. right now. 
often these conversations end up being about risk and how, Mm. what is risky in us potentially doing something, how it is going to go poorly or harm some existing capacity that we have, which is the easier side of risk to talk about because it's more visible. But there's this kind of invisible side of risk, which is what we are giving up by not being able to do something differently. So that huge invisible swath of everything we could do if we had more capability is really easy to ignore when you're doing these risk calculations because it is so, so invisible. So I I will often try to have that conversation with with leadership teams around, well, what are we leaving on the table here just because we Mm -hmm. can't do things differently? And it's not just the obvious stuff. Like there's a whole world of possibility about how things could go or what you could do if you were more adaptive or all of the things that that we care about. And you don't want to just over-index on the visible risks we can see. Y'all, write to us and tell us what else you need in terms of selling your executive team. There's so many things to talk about here, and we really want you to feel well-supported and going to have some of these conversations about how changing the system is the only way to get different outcomes. So let's assume that Sam and I were super helpful or that you just have the kind of CEO who's like in the mindset of having a really great future of work organization and wants that for you and for themselves. Let's just assume that. Now you get to turn around and talk to your HR team about this. And you'd think that they'd all be really excited and fired up and ready to take the hill, but I bet you they will not be. Um, Or not all of them, not to a person. So Sam, you've done a lot of work with HR teams, especially recently. What do you think about that? Where my head goes immediately is that this is not even just like an HR team thing. This is like an anybody team thing where there is the possibility of doing things differently. And you've got the the few folks who probably could be you know employees at the ready they're so, like so progressive and like <laughs> down to do whatever like those yeah. people are great I love finding those folks they're a lot of fun like it's great to have allies there's the big chunk in the middle who are like yeah you know like I'll I'll go along to get along like there's some interesting ideas here but I have some reservations and then there's always the kind of sticks in the mud that they're going to be loud about how they disagree with what's going on here and I think where my mind goes first is to not get fixated on the naysayers right off of the bat. Like mm. I think it's my first move generally, because I want everyone to love me, is mm. to go to the people who don't and try to convince them that they should. <laughs> Please love and, me. I'm so Rodney, great. <laughs> how, how well do you think that works? Not super well. I bet <laughs> it's really super annoying. super great. Uh-huh. So I think the move is to go to more of that middle of the curve, to the more progressive end of the curve, and start there where you can. Yeah. Because what you can do is start to show progress and start to show some actual evidence that there is something here. And that often helps move people further down the curve who would normally be standing there with their arms crossed, kind of frowning at you. So that's my first thought. I'm curious what else comes to mind for you when you're thinking about, you know, kind of bringing something like this to a new team. You know, a lot of this is more informed by my experience in HR than it is by being a org designer externally. I feel like you've got to acknowledge for people what has come before. So like if you're leading an HR team and this is their fourth fucking transformation and the first three are like the 70 to 80% of transformation efforts that are considered failure statistically, you cannot just go in and be like, this time it's going to be different, you guys. Like, why would any rational actor believe you, you know? 
And so I feel like there has to be some acknowledgement and real education around why and how this is going to be different. And the ways to talk about it are like, this isn't going to just be like a plan with a bunch of communications. We are going to do this incrementally so that no matter where we stop, we have moves to keep. It's not an all or nothing game. And I also think talking directly about the buy-in from the business is really important because especially when you're an HR business partner and your primary allegiance, frankly, is to your internal client. When you're like, look, Frank in finance is fired the fuck up about this and he wants to be on the first mission-based team with you. That for me as a business partner is much more compelling than we're going to transform HR. Totally. I, I, I love that. What it makes me think of as well to that idea of like kind of honoring what has come before is also... I think sometimes it is easy to get really wrapped up in the new when it comes to transformation because you know that's yeah. what we are, are naturally drawn to. And I think the interesting challenge that is really important to do well is to honor the great work that is currently ongoing and has been done in the past and will need to continue into the future. Like yeah. there's so much of the... I don't mean this in a diminished way, but like keep the lights on work that HR has to do regardless of the transformation that is happening. And there is room to do that work with excellence and with care and the people who are bringing true expertise and years of experience to doing that work really well. I think sometimes there is um, an initial worry that like, ah, this cool new transformation thing, like I don't see myself in it because I'm doing X, Y, Z thing that is going to have to continue on after the transformation too. Yeah. I also think that, you know, I was talking to someone at this event that I went to last week who recently went through an HR transformation and was talking about a new team that was spun up that was around like employee experience or people experience or use, I don't know, whatever it's called now. But my point is, she was saying to me that one of the big challenges is, you know, everyone had to reapply or apply for the roles in this new employee experience team. I assume that that was done in some smart way. So the people who had the skills to be in those roles are the ones who do. I don't know. But it's a very different kind of role than a lot of them had before. And there's not real clarity or support for how to be different and work differently. And like... I remember all the years ago that I interviewed in my company to become an HR business partner and then got that job. And they gave me a job description, but nobody like taught me how to be a consultant or do real right. contracting or do real coaching or like partner with all of the internal teams that I, nobody really taught me how to do anything. They just interviewed me and were like, well, she can fog a mirror. Here's your new job description. Don't fuck it up. Yeah. And it's like, don't do that. That's the worst. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's really easy to hand wave around it and be like, oh, you know, people will figure it out or we selected for go-getters or entrepreneurial, whatever you want to like say to like basically offload the responsibility of helping people step into new ways of working and new ways of being in the organization. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's garbage. It's garbage. It's hot, hot garbage. And so I think one of the sales to your own HR team is this idea that, through doing this work differently within mission-based teams and then, you know, in the level four of the maturity model, really starting to dig into the platform teams, they are going to learn all or most of the skills that are most heavily researched as being future of work skills. 
So really learning data literacy and facilitation and contracting and workflow re-engineering and like really having the lived experience of being trained to do these things in the context, not in a week-long executive ed program, but in the context with real coworkers, like I think that is compelling because that is theirs to keep. And they right. you are doing the thing that all training should do where people are learning new skills that they're both immediately able to apply while changing the environment so that it expects and supports those skills. So you're not yeah. putting people in a situation where you're like, go learn about influencing. And then I come back on Monday and I'm like, hey, Jeff, what I'd really like to see us do differently. And he's like, shut the fuck up and color. And it's like, cool. I'm so glad I went to that influencing <laughs> conversation, you know? So I feel like that should be compelling because these skills are really valuable skills. They're really valuable skills, whether yeah. you stay in HR or whether you become a CEO. They're just, yeah. you should have them. I was just going to say that I really respect when I've been in this situation a couple of times where we've had this conversation about like, okay, the skills that we're learning here, they are kind of organization agnostic. Like these are future proofing yes. skills. Like they will be useful wherever your career takes you. And I always really appreciate when an organization kind of like has the guts to, to like understand that maybe not all of their employees will spend their entire careers in that organization and are okay. Like talking about the fact that you are learning things that you might be able to use in your future, even if you're not in that organization any longer. Totally. Uh, instead of kind of just parading around this facade that we're all going to be 40-year lifers in this, in this organization. And Totally. Totally. Okay. So we've got our peer team on board conceptually. We've got our HR team all fired up and ready to go. But usually, even when we are agreed in principle, there are two roles that get a little wily in partnership with transformation at some point. And those roles are finance leaders and CEOs. So let's talk really specifically about how to navigate getting them not on board once, but on board in a continual way so that they don't end up ruining or blocking or preventing this transformation from happening because it's not going to happen in a month. You're going to need, you need yeah. a little runway to get yeah. this done. So totally. why don't you start with whoever you want to talk about? I think let's do finance first because I think I've had okay. the most recent kind of experience with this in some client stuff that I've been working on. And the main thing that my head goes to when you're thinking about whoever's holding that finance role, CFO or whatever, is how to help them, if they're not already in the in this mindset, of conceptualizing HR not just as a cost center, but mm. as a place where smart investment will allow growth to, to mm -hmm. happen. I think a lot of time, and the most sophisticated CFOs, they're already thinking this way. Like They get yeah. that the stuff that HR is doing will allow for the growth that every organization wants. But it's easy to look over at HR and just see a bunch of things that could be streamlined, that could be made more efficient, that are a bunch of nice-to-haves when really we should just be focusing on the must-haves, things like that. So there's a whole, I mean, that conversation alone could probably be an entire episode. But yeah. I'm curious if that has been your experience. And if so, like, how do you start to have that conversation to shift thinking about HR in that way? Yeah. I mean, two things come to mind. One is finance people usually want to hear about efficiency. 
And so I think starting to talk about the ways in which separating the decentralized from the centralized work creates opportunity for automation, creates efficiency, reallocates capacity in ways that are more clearly related to business value, I think is compelling. One of the lovely upsides is that we are going to have a different kind of culture, but I think what will be compelling to a lot of finance leaders because of what they're held accountable to is we're going to have a much better sense of where the resources are going in HR and what we're getting for them. So we're going to have much clearer ROI and we're going to have a lot more like fungible capacity that we can move around to do the right stuff. I think that yeah. is generally a compelling argument. The other thing that I think to your point, like smart and thinking finance leaders, and there are a lot of them out there, are compelled by is like, if you think about the fact that in most companies now, like somewhere between 80 and 90% of the value of companies is intangibles, like it's human capital and it's knowledge. Whereas like in the 70s, 90% of companies value was tangible assets. So if you think about that, it's like a CFO of a company that is making cars wouldn't be like, let's just let the factory floor become overrun with like rust and rats and hope for the best. And that's the kind of mindset that we need to be applying to the human beings in the system because they're the cars now that we're making. And so there are a lot of people, particularly at the ready, who hate using the word resources for human beings. But I think in terms of how finance looks at this, you have to look at the way that you are protecting the assets of the company and what it costs you if you don't protect the assets of the company. And I I heard someone talking really recently about the ways in which she makes case around her own value as an HR leader. And she will draw a direct line for her CEO to be like, you know, when he's praising the top saleswoman in the org, she'll be like, I designed the process that hired that person and the incentive package that kept that person and created the culture that she doesn't want to leave even though she's getting four calls from recruiters a week. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of return on the investment in me. Multiply that across this organization. So I think it's helping the finance people sometimes look at what is being saved even over what is being spent, because a lot of times that is where HR is creating a ton, a ton of unseen value. Totally, totally. I think that's really, that's really smart and where my head goes. And I can't decide if it's depressing that a large part of the job is like telling the story of like what you are doing because nobody else can see it. Or if that's just like kind of comes with the gig of being a senior leader in an organization in a discipline that is not necessarily incredibly visible. Like being able to help people see, because I don't think people are generally, your peers are not like going out of their way to not understand or not to give credit. It's just things that aren't visible are easy to ignore or not even yeah. notice. And that's a large, a large part of it. The other thing is in the most extreme bonus bingo level of this maturity model. Look, there is a world in which HR can become a profit center. Like we have seen it, not often, but it is possible. We're not going to talk about that today. But if money is the main object, then talking about the way in which starting down this path can lead to HR as 
a revenue generating function, I think is really interesting. And you and I did a workshop together where we talked about this with an HR team and I was a little hesitant to do so because I'm like, it's miles to go before you sleep, you know? But, and they were like very little, they were like, we can see our way to that. And they were really stoked about it. Totally. I saw them think about their role in a different way, maybe for the first time for a lot of them, realizing that there is a future, a plausible future where they are generating revenue for their organization through their HR activities. Okay. So what about the CEO? So finance is on board now because they understand that we need to think in terms of savings. I thought you said earlier that we're just assuming the CEO is on board and we're good to go. And is that not true anymore? (laughs) It might be. But you know what sometimes happens, Sam? This has happened to me a lot. You know, you get six weeks into the transformation and you start to actually like change some stuff. And the CEO is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't mean this. What is happening here? (laughs) Not my stuff, not things that affect me. I'm just going to interview a bunch of people and give me a PowerPoint deck and send me an invoice. The fuck is this? So whether it's going in or it's a little ways in, you will have to have like continual buy-in and support from the CEO. And if you don't, they'll just screw it up for you. So what do you do? What do you do with the CEO? You've worked with a lot of CEOs. I have, and they're all so different from each other, actually, at least in my experience. I think the commonality, when I think back to our best projects, CEOs, we kept them very engaged in the sense that we were from the very beginning involving them and talking about the larger picture of what we were here to do. And they were really, truly contributing to that vision as I think a CEO ought to do. Mm -hmm. I think earlier in my career, I had this assumption that was pretty quickly ruined for me where if the CEO just stays out of the way, like if they're just kind of quiet and lets you go off and like do your own thing, then you can build up enough of a case by the time they are noticing again that you're good to go. And maybe that works. It's never really worked for me. Every time we've kind of done that, the CEO eventually becomes aware of what's going on and either like kind of stomps all over it accidentally, which is the best case outcome, actually. And the worst case, which happens more often, is they just deliberately kind of crap all over it. I've had that one. Yeah. They're like, wait, what are you doing? Stop that. Get out. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. I think that if I were in the CHRO job and I was talking to a CEO about this and trying to get them excited and on board, it's sort of similar to where we started. But I think HR leaders tend to know the CEO's personalities better than most people because they Mm -hmm. are generally sort of like the keeper of secrets. They're often like, you know, special quiet counsel to the CEO. Most CHROs that I know have a very, very tight relationship with the CEO that is in some ways like the culture of the company often mirrors what that relationship is. And so I do think that having an understanding of what is really most important to that executive is really critical. And I know that might sound like so fucking duh to say, but it's like I have had the hubris of being like, don't you want to do this because it'll work and it's the right thing? And it's like what that CEO that I'm talking to actually cares about is like their legacy, or they actually care about their stock price, 
or they actually are worried about getting replaced and they don't want to. And it's like- Or they're, they're getting like incredible pressure from the board. And the pressure from the board is to reduce cost. And that's really what their focus is right now. That's really though- where it's at. Exactly. And it's like, if you have the kind of CEO, and I worked with one of these, that is literally checking the stock price on average every 10 minutes, Oof. you're not going to sell them on like this vision for the future of work because like that's yeah. not- what is up for them right now? And I feel like I have had to like kind of get out of my own way in terms of being like, this is exciting. <laughs> it's like not to them, not right now. Yeah. And yeah. then I talk to CEOs about this work in terms of like, tell me what you're trying to do. Yeah. And I Strategy. will tell you what kind of organization you need to have to do it. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who holds a leadership role like myself, you know, when we hired Ashley, who's our finance steward now, into the role, one of the first conversations that we had that was about what kind of reporting she wanted to do and what kind of metrics and thresholds and targets and things she wanted to create was she was like, you tell me what you are trying to do here and I will create the financial engine to do it. And I was like, holy shit. First of all, it's very exciting. Second of all, pressure's on. But in a good way, like in a good, exciting, compelling way. And I think an HR person can have the same conversation, which is pressure's on show me your thing. Both directions. Both directions. Both directions. So like totally pressure on you to articulate a thing that makes sense, a a coherent, cohesive strategy, which is not a given, even in the most senior of executive teams. No, not that easy. Pressure on Ashley to step up and deliver that thing. So yeah. I think it's a, it's a healthy bi-directional tension there. I think it is because it's like, okay, we're really going to like link arms on this thing. <laughs> and I think HR can do that. You know, I've had conversations in transformation projects with very, very senior leaders where once I understand what their motivation is, what is going to get them what they want next, I can articulate the kind of operating system that they need. Yeah. And and usually that buys you a lot of trust and like a lot of engagement and a lot of space to not just be like, I have my own agenda or HR has their own agenda or this is what an external consultant put in a PowerPoint deck and said we should do. But it's like, CEO, what is your agenda? Let's go get that and let me show you how this work connects to that. I think that's important. And just to say, from a research perspective, In our discussions in the lead up to launching this thing, like every person we talked to who was in an HR leadership role spoke openly and without being asked about how much the success of transformation rides on the CEO. So like, do not overlook it. Don't try to do an end around. Don't think like, I'll catch them up later. It's not going to happen. You got to get ahead of it. Yeah, totally. Definitely. Uh, Matches my experience in even the non-future of HR uh, transformation work we do as well. This is going to be a spicy take, but I have to say it. I feel like sometimes the buy-in thing is an excuse. Say more. I just feel like a lot of times HR leaders are so habituated to asking for permission that they don't exercise the authority that they do have or they don't come to their leadership team being like, this is the right thing. This is my domain. Is this safe to try? Let's fucking go. 
And I understand that the stakeholdering is a rational response to how most HR people have been treated in their career. And also, I think it can be a bit of an avoidance mechanism to be like, I'll never get buy-in. And it's like, well, I don't know. Does that mean you're not going to try to do stuff? I think think that's a great take. And let me make sure I'm understanding correctly. What you're not saying is do the opposite of what we just talked about with the exe- with the CEO stuff. You're not saying like, just go off in secret and do whatever the hell you want. Yeah, I'm not suggesting like go rogue, but yeah. I do feel like an assumption that you're never going to get buy-in, an assumption of the buy-in that you need without really clarifying what that actually is, an assumption that everybody has to fully understand and be fully supportive from the beginning, yeah, I just, yeah. I don't think all of that is totally necessary to get started, totally. but it's really easy to use that. Yeah. And I think what that just clarified for me is that buy-in is obviously an ongoing process that evolves and changes as the work evolves and changes. And what you need to get started is different from what you need six months in, which is different from what you need 18 months in. And yeah. waiting until you have that perfect buy-in to even start probably not the move because that's not how you get anything done. Right. And that's why we start small. How much buy-in do you really need to run three teams cross-functionally against a priority? Go get it and then show them how awesome you are. That's it. Okay. I'm going to stop ranting because I could just do it forever. Um, (laughs) We don't have any more time. What should we do next time, Sam? I think next week we should talk about like specific skills. We Mm -hmm. alluded to skill development that is inherent in this future of HR stuff we've been developing. So, like, why don't we dive a little bit deeper into into that? Yeah, I'm excited about that. Okay, we'll do that. And if you want a preview of that, check out the goods on theready.com forward slash FOHR. There is stuff in there. Introduce us to your CHRO or your HRBP. You can do that by emailing us at F-O-H-R at theready.com. Thanks as always to Taylor for making us sound good. This series is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Sam is doing a dance right now. It is amazing. As for you and your HR leaders and your HR friends and colleagues and family members, let's change ourselves first. 